Haven Your Northwest School of Kingdom Ministry starts September 18th, so it's just right around the corner. This is going to be our third year of doing the class of the church, and over the past three years, it's had an amazing impact on this church's life and culture. We've seen such a deepened understanding of our identity in Christ and actually an activation and practical understanding of how to engage in Holy Spirit ministry. So I want to give you the chance right now to hear from some students here who go to this church, Veer Northwest, who graduated last year from School of Kingdom Ministry about what their experience was like. For me, I would say the most impactful part of Sockham would definitely be the teachings. Um, growing up in church, uh, we sometimes get very elementary teachings on uh, praying for strangers and praying for the Holy Spirit, power evangelism, and speaking in tongues. But in Sockham, we get a really deep and foundational understanding of why we do those things. The teachings from Putty, uh, the, the local teachings, the activations that we went out on, uh, that is what impacted me the most. I'd say the most impactful part of School of Kingdom Ministry was just learning um, more about my identity and getting to a point of just feeling totally able to accept God's love. And um, it just brought a lot of freedom for me and a lot of confidence to, to share that love out with other people. I've been a Christian all my life, and, and this was brand new to me to hear all of the different ways of um, what the kingdom is all about right now and living the kingdom day in and day out and bringing the kingdom to life to me. I would encourage someone to take a School of Kingdom Ministry if they have any interest in, in going deeper in their faith and learning more about who they are and who God is. I would encourage someone to take School of Kingdom Ministry if they have those serious um, spiritual questions like, um, is God good all the time? Or how do I even begin to love strangers? Or what's my purpose? Um, I would definitely recommend them to take Sockham. The teachings, um, you get all those answers in the teachings and you just get a deeper understanding of who you are in Christ and um, why that matters to the outside world. Uh, I'd encourage anybody to do it. Anybody that, that just wants to you know, build their faith, build... Uh, you know their own abilities and skills in in kingdom work and in gifts of the spirit. Um, it, it's just it's wonderful. And and if there wasn't a year two, we we've already talked. We'd do year one again. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Van. I'm the lead pastor here, and um, I just want to follow up that video by saying that uh, Sockham is life-changing. It is revolutionary. It is worth every minute of the time you put into it. I don't know that anybody has regretted taking Sockham. And one of the things that I noticed, in, and one of the things on my heart always, uh, is uh, you know, how do we have people connect with each other here in the church body? And what I noticed, the first year of Sockham, which was the year I went through year, year one, uh, we had about half young adults and half then, um, what, more seasoned believers. And, uh, and the cool thing was that we had people in their 70s connecting with 20-year-olds and, and really developing relationship and really connecting at a heart level. And the same thing happened last year. We probably had about half, uh, half the people taking it were 30 or under, and the other half would have been in, in more of an upper age range. And, and it really has been connecting people. And so 
that, that's always a good thing. And especially when you realize they're being connected around foundational, powerful, freeing teaching and experience of God's presence. So uh, I, I would just say this. I want all of you to take Sockham, okay, as your pastor. You know, the shepherd is supposed to lead the sheep and guide the sheep and say, hey, we're going to this flock next. Or we're going to this field next. Here's where the flock's headed. Well, that's, that's what I'm saying. That's where the flock is headed. I want you to be part of it. And so I encourage you to take it, and I think it'll be life-changing for you. Well, today we're going to start a, a new three-part series that is based upon questions that we've received from uh, some of you. And thank you to all of you who have uh, sent questions into us. We really appreciate that. Uh, before we do that, I, I want to start with just a, a real short little joke here and um, just uh, give this to you just so we can all maybe laugh for a moment together, all right? So there, there was this homeless guy, and he was going from house to house trying to find food, trying to find, you know, some sustenance for his life. And he ended up in Beverly Hills knocking on doors. And he knocked on, on a door, and the man came to the front door, and he said, Hi, I'm hungry. Can you give me some food? And the guy says, I'll, I'll gladly give you food. But he said, I really believe you should work for what you get. And so he says, before I feed you, I want you to take this bucket of uh, green paint and go out back and paint the porch. He said, I've prepared the porch and I want you to paint it. And so he gives him the bucket and the guy leaves. He comes back 30 minutes later and says, well, I'm done. And the, the homeowner is really surprised. He said, what? He said, how could you have gotten done that quickly? He said, well, it wasn't that hard. And, and by the way, sir... That wasn't a Porsche, that was a Mercedes. <laughs> All right, some of you will laugh later today. All right, today we're going to look at three questions. And um, one of them is a, a question about a passage of Scripture and what it means. Another one is a question about the Garden of Eden. And then the third question has to do with a, a real current issue in our culture and in the world today, and, and that has to do with homosexuality. And then the, that's today. Now, next week, we're going to answer a question about what happens when a person dies. You know, what happens immediately after death? Do you go into some sort of soul sleep? Is there a waiting room in eternity, kind of like a purgatory place you go? Uh, you know, what happens immediately after death? And then joined with that question, we're going to uh, deal with, with another question that we received about, regen or about uh, regeneration, about reincarnation and, um, and eternal life. And so those questions will fit together, and that's what we'll look at next week. And then the third week of this series, I'm going to have a panel up here. We'll have a few people up here, and we'll, uh, we'll work through some different questions from a few different angles from some of our teaching staff. So today, we have these three questions we're going to look at. We're going to start with the one that is obviously the tougher question uh, having to do with homosexuality. So here is the question I received. Is homosexuality something people are born with, or is it a choice? Okay, good question, huh? Now, this is a tough question, not because uh, it's hard to discern what the Bible says or doesn't say about issues like this. It's tough because it's such an issue in our culture today, and, and you, you have such a division of opinions 
I mean, on the one hand, on one end, uh, you would have people that would say anything that two consenting adults agree to is okay. And we should all not only allow that, but we should bless it and never say anything that would be contrary to it. On the other end of the spectrum, you have people that would proclaim that you are condemned to hell simply for disagreeing with them on this issue. Whether you practice anything or not, even if, if, if you're just an innocent bystander and you take a different viewpoint than that extreme side, they'll condemn you to hell for it. And so there's so much tension around this in our culture today, even to the point that speaking about it, having an opinion on it, has come to be called hate speech. If, if you have an opinion that's contrary to the mainstream opinion, then that is identified as hate speech today, which is really um, uh, something that is kind of insidious because it, it, it forbids the free exchange of ideas. It forbids people from actually just expressing, even with a, with a good, loving, kind heart, what they believe about some of, some of these social issues. But for this issue today, um, I, I want to start off with a verse that is going to be a reminder to us about what, who Jesus is and why he came, all right? Here's what, here's what the Bible says in John 3.17. John 3.17, it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. All right, Jesus didn't come to, he wasn't like the morality police coming, trying to whip the world into shape. He didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. And Jesus himself said, the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. And so we need to, we need to have that firm in our hearts anytime we address an issue like this. Uh, throughout the New Testament, the love of Christ is referred to over and over and over and over. The Apostle Paul, who wrote some very strong things about this issue of homosexuality, also wrote and said, the love of Christ compels us, or the love of Christ constrains us is another translation. And what he's saying is that the love of Jesus, the love Jesus has for the lost, the love Jesus has for broken, hurting people is what directs and informs and fills his heart in his dealing with people. And so we, we want to keep that uh, just at the forefront of our thinking and hopefully find a path that without judging or condemning, uh, but where there is loving truth as well, because there is no real love without truth. The two have to go together. And, uh, and so we want, to, we want to speak loving truth. And the question itself it has to do with desires. Are people, are, are people born with homosexual desires? The word's not in the question. Or is it a choice? But that, that is really what it's dealing with. And so the, um, the options are a person is born with some DNA uh, programming to desire relationship that is a same-sex relationship. That's one option. Or is the option that someone in life just decides, hey, I think I'm going to go this direction. I'm going to, my life is going to be this. I know that looks okay, but this looks better. I'm going to do this. Or a third option, which would be related to the choice option, I believe, has to do with the person's background, their history. 
Um, was there something about their family or the, the parenting or their reaction to their parents or some other maybe abuse that they experienced in childhood that they've responded to in such a way that their life has gone the direction of, of um, being committed to a, a same-sex uh, relationship and desires that are same-sex relationship. And so what's the answer to that? Here's the answer. We don't know. Okay? We don't know. Uh, it, it could be, uh, I'm sure in some cases it's a learned, learned behavior where there are choices made that, that direct a person that way. Other cases it might be uh, their, their background. And, and I just don't know uh, scientifically the answer to the whole genetic question, is a person born with this inclination? Now, the implication of that would be, or, or, or some people would, would want to imply, that if that's the case, then that person has no choice in the matter, and that those are their desires, and therefore that's their identity, and they should be permitted to fulfill their identity by pursuing their desires. But the problem with that is this. We, we need to recognize that our desires are not our identity. Your desi- what you desire is not who you are. It's not your identity. And when we recognize that and we realize that, it, it gives us a different view of life. It gives us a different view of what it means because we would say this no matter what the cause, we all have choice as to whether or not we are going to pursue the fulfillment of our desires. Now, if desires equaled identity, and if even a genetic predisposition equaled identity, and every, every person should be able to fulfill their identity by pursuing and fulfilling all of their desires, if that was the case, then just about every man in this room would be a serial adulterer. Because men are programmed to desire women that they find attractive. Now, is that true or not, guys? Come on. Every man here should raise their hand with me. That's, that's true. All right? Don't look at your wife first. Just be honest. Be truthful. But we say no to that. We say no. That's, that's the, that desire is because I live in a fallen world. I'm born into a fallen race. And so that, even though, I'm, even though I know Jesus and I'm born again as a believer and, and I am a new creation, my mind isn't totally renewed yet. And, and some of my desires haven't caught up with that new creation that I am yet. And so it's a choice over and over and over again to say, no, not that, this. This is the woman I love. This is the woman I've committed myself to. She is the one my heart is focused on. And so it's a decision over and over. We all make choices. And, and, and for the fulfillment of desire is not a legitimate basis uh, for anything that we do in life. And, and certainly not in the respect of fulfilling every desire that uh, someone might have. Now, the key to this all, I believe is understanding God's intent. You know, what is God's intent? Why did God create us the way he did? And, and what, what's his intent as far as what is marriage? 
and, and what is God's desire. Uh, Jesus is pretty clear about this. There's a passage in Matthew 9 that we're going to read. It's going to come up on the screen here. He was, um, he, Jesus was constantly being questioned by people who were in opposition to him, trying to catch him and saying something they could attack him over. And there was a group of uh, religious leaders of the day that had very, very, very loose ideals when it came to divorce. In fact, the uh, kind of the, the standard uh, illustration is that a man could divorce his wife because she burnt the toast that morning. I mean, if he was upset with her over anything, he could divorce her. That was the one viewpoint. Now, the women didn't have the same privileges as the men in that regard. But these guys are asking Jesus about this question. And here's what Jesus says. Here's the answer he gives. He answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer one, though they are no longer two, but one flesh. Now, Jesus, in answering this question about divorce, answered it by giving the, the, the foundational teaching on what marriage is. He says, marriage is a man and a woman coming together to become one. Now, when you apply that truth to the question they asked about divorce, then that would say, well, no, you can't easily dissolve that union. You can't flippantly dissolve that union. God's intent. We need to honor God's intent. And when you look deeper, he's saying that God, God is saying that he created two that would complement each other because they come together and like two pieces of a puzzle, they fit together and they become one, not only emotionally and, and mentally, but as well physically. And so he defines marriage for us here as being between a male and a female. Now, his answer was not based just on a cultural perception of things. He goes right back to creation. And so he's getting right back to the foundational issue of the whole thing. What was God's intent? Now, I, I have more to say about that. But just, just to make sure that we realize that the issue of, of uh, same-sex relationships is very clearly addressed in the Bible, I want to read one verse from the Old Testament and one verse from the New Testament. That, that speak to this issue. And in uh, Leviticus uh, 18.22, it says this, You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. So he's saying, he's speaking to men here, but the same thing applies in other cases to women. Two men can't lie down together naked and do the same things that a man and a woman do. That's what he's saying. And why? Well, he says it's an abomination. Now, the word abomination sounds like horrific and horrible and like God's in heaven with, uh, with lightning arrows ready to strike. The word abomination means that something that is abhorrent because it is so contrary to what it is supposed to be. Something that is so out of step with what just the natural flow of what it is supposed to be that there is a reaction to it. When I was a boy, there were times in my hometown that there, there were violent car accidents around. It seemed like a lot of them back, back in the hills of PA where the uh, 
the, the roads were all filled with curves and twists. And when that would happen, they would bring the cars to the local garage. And when we'd hear about that, we'd go down and look in, inside the cars. And, and you would see, like, blood splattered. And, you would, and, and you'd look at that, and it just, it was horrible. It was like, it was like abhorrent because it was so contrary to the way it was supposed to be. And, and you're thinking, these poor people, and look, and this, is, this is outside the realm of what is supposed to happen. And when God looks at same-sex relationships, he's saying, you know, that's so far outside the realm of what I intended it to be that, that God, he reacts to it. He just, he, it, it just, just picture God just taking a step back, not, not in anger, not in wrath, wanting to destroy the people or anything, but just looking at that thing that's happening and saying, that's not what I meant. Now, why is that? Why is it so important? Well, th- this, word, um, uh, this word abomination speaks to the issue of what is intended versus what has come about. And so we need to understand God's intent in marriage was to reveal himself. You see, it says he created them male and female. He created man, and it says he created them male and female, and he created them in his image. And so God's intent in creating man and woman is that it takes both of us together to reflect the image of God. And so God's, God's plan for marriage was a revelation of himself to the world. And then think about this. Adam and Eve, when they were in the garden, they walked with God in the cool of the evening. And so for them, they, the two of them were united, and then God came and God spent time with them. Now, the Bible paints a picture of God as a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so you have the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, living in this perfect fellowship and unity for all eternity. And then they create mankind, male and female, bond them together, and then at least one person of the Trinity comes to be with them. And so what do you have there? You have three people involved in this bond. You have the man and the woman becoming one, and then God being part of their lives. And, and so you have, on the one hand, a trinity, a three-part trinity here. And on this hand, you have man, woman, and the presence of God in their lives. And so the, 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 there's an overlap in the revelation of who God is, even as a Trinitarian being, in the marriage relationship. And so it's so important that God, God says that it's an abomination when he sees that distorted because it's a, it, it then distorts the relationship of the Trinity. It, it spoils the picture of the beauty of who God is that he wanted to reveal to this earth by creating us male and female. And so in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, um, who was an early follower of Christ, wrote much, much of the Bible in the New Testament. Uh, he wrote this. And he's talking about cultures where homosexuality had become rampant because of a rejection of truth. And he says, their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men 
and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, that's very clear that Paul is saying that the, this, the, the, the act of, uh, of intimacy, when that happens between two males, that it is outside God's plan. Uh, the Bible we just read, it is an, um, an abomination because it, it, it spoils the image of who God is. And it sullies that image that God wanted to reveal to the world. But when he uh, says this, um, some people looking back on that, they will say, well, uh, and actually you need to know this. In that culture, this was totally countercultural for Paul to write this. Homosexuality was rampant in those days. It was everywhere. Even the emperors, uh, famous people were open openly uh, homosexual. And so what Paul wrote was totally countercultural. But some people would say, well, there was a lot of sex where there were men taking advantage of boys. And so that's what he's forbidding. And then others would say, well, he's forbidding uh, a man who is married from having adultery by having relations with another man. He's forbidding that. But he's not saying anything about two men or two women in a loving, committed, long-term relationship. And so that's kind of like the reasoning. But if you look at the words here, and you have to look at the words of Scripture, it doesn't say anything like that. If that's what Paul wanted to say no to, that's what he would have said. But he, but he says it is uh, men lying together, a woman with a woman, or a man with a man. And so he's not talking about, uh, of course, pedophilia is wrong and horrific and, and abhorrent and worse than anything else we're talking about here. And of course, adultery is wrong, but he's not, he's not talking about that. He's talking about the, the, actual, um, the actual homosexual relationship. And so what we need to recognize is this. In another passage, let me, let me say this first. In another passage, Paul talks and he says, he lists all these things. He says uh, liars, cheaters, uh, those, that are, those that are committed to greed and, and avarice. And, and in the midst of that list, he, he refers to the effeminate, to homosexuals, to adulterers, and, and to a whole bunch of things like that. And then he says to the Corinthian church, he says, such were some of you. He said, you, some of you know what I'm talking about because that used to be your lifestyle. And then he goes on to say, but you were washed, you were cleansed, you were brought into the life of Jesus. Now, here's my point with that. They didn't come to Jesus because someone picketed them and told them they were going to go to hell. They came to Jesus because someone loved them. They, came, they didn't come to Jesus because someone condemned them. They came to Jesus because someone loved them. And when you, when you read most of what's written in the New Testament about this, it is, it's they're saying, that shouldn't be named among you, believers. They're writing to believers. And as far as the world is concerned, our interface with the world is not to try to make the world a better, give the world a higher level of morality. That doesn't accomplish anything. What we want to do is see revival that sweeps thousands and thousands and thousands of people into the kingdom of God. 
And when that happens, then the cultural morality will shift. But we're not like the, the sin police. where we're at, it's, it's not our job to try to change our culture by new rules and new laws. And, and the, listen, I'm talking about the, the purpose of the church and the purpose of the kingdom in the world. And a side note, as a citizen of a country, I need to be a good citizen. And what that means is I need to vote. And I need to vote in a way that is consistent with biblical truth and, and, and all of that. So that's a side note. I'm not saying that we should withdraw from culture or society. I'm saying that our interface with culture and society when it comes to dealing with people has to be that we love them and we want to offer them life and, and not that we come with judgment as if I can have someone stop doing something as if that's going to make an eternal difference. That doesn't make an eternal difference in the person's life. And why would I want to try to get someone whose very core nature is, is, uh, is to live in a worldly way? Why do I want to try to force some external rule system on them? I want, I want to see their heart changed. And that just takes the love of Jesus. And so, um, all right, enough said about that. Um, all right, let's take a couple seconds to debrief. Now I'm going to go into the second question. It has nothing to do with the first one. Okay, ready? 1,001, 1,002, 1,003. All right, next question. Uh, where is the Garden of Eden? This is more, a little softer question, okay? I know there was an angel placed at the gate. If Jesus restored us from the fall, is Eden something we'll see in heaven? Good question. All right, here's the answer. God created Adam and Eve, placed them in a garden, and what did he tell them to do? Genesis 1.28, it says this, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, etc. All right, so here's the thing. God creates the earth and he creates this one spot, Eden, which is the earth at its best. The earth in everything it could be, everything he created it to be. But it was a step above the rest of the planet because the rest of the planet hadn't yet been subdued like Eden had. And what God's intent was for Adam and Eve to fill the earth and to what? To subdue it. That means there's something that had to be subdued. It's like if you ever known anyone that built their own house and they got just enough of the house done that they could live in it. But they haven't finished the basement. They haven't finished all the bedrooms. The living room's not finished yet. But they've got the bedroom and the kitchen and small bathroom. Okay, that's what this is like. God created the earth, but it wasn't finished yet. There was still stuff that needed to be done to bring it into the order that was his intent. And that was re that's illustrated in Eden. And so what would have happened if they had simply obeyed this command of Genesis 1.28 without sinning. What would have happened was babies would have been born. And then more babies would have been born. They're growing up. And more babies are born and they're growing up. And pretty soon, Eden's not big enough. And you gotta, you got to add on. you got to build on to this. And so there are all these other people that are available now to tend the garden with Adam and Eve. And so they're planting more trees. And they're extending the Garden of Eden. And so God's original intent was that Adam and Eve 
would extend the Garden of Eden so that it would fill the whole earth. That's what subduing the earth was. And, of course, Adam and Eve sinned, and that brought death. There were two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which they were forbidden from, from doing, sin entered, spiritual death came in, and they were put out of the garden, and God put an angel at the gate of the garden with a flaming sword to protect the garden. Why did he do that? Well, most theologians believe it was because if Adam and Eve had had access to the garden and they went in and ate of the other tree, the tree of life, that they would have had eternal life in their fallen state. And they would have been beyond redemption because they would have been confirmed in fallenness. And so God protects the garden with that angel. And when would the garden have gone away? I mean, Adam and Eve had to tend it. So there was tending that needed. And, and, and now the world is, is fallen. And so one of two things, either the outside vegetation eventually just crept in. You know how fast grapevines grow and other things and took it over. Or the garden remained until the flood, Noah's flood, and it was destroyed in Noah's flood. We don't know which. But um, will we see the Garden of Eden in heaven? Uh, we're going to talk about heaven more later. But uh, the heaven will be a whole lot better than the Garden of Eden, okay? Okay, let's just say that. And then we're going to talk a little bit more about that next week, all right? Okay, fair enough. Listen, that truth is the foundation of kingdom theology. It was a partnership. God put man here to exercise a partnership with him, mankind. And, and it was our job to fill the earth. It was our job to subdue the earth and make it what God wanted it to be, what God intended it to be. Now that there's been the fall of man, the earth fell into a horrific condition far before it was just undone. Now it has, now it has been destroyed and, and now that Jesus came and he restored us to relationship with God, he gives us this commission that Adam and Eve had when Jesus said, now I want you to go out into the earth and do what? Make disciples of all the nations, teaching them everything I've taught you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, teaching them everything I've taught you. So you see that very commission echoes back to the call of God on Adam and Eve's lives. And now we carry out this commission of God, just like Adam and Eve were, to care for the garden and to expand the garden to fill the earth. Now, that's our job. In the power of the Holy Spirit, we push back the darkness. Okay. Next question. These two questions I'm going to deal with more quickly, but um, one more question. Um, Why would Jesus commend the dishonest manager in the Luke 16 parable? All right, I'm going to tell you this. I was going to read it to you, but time's fleeing. So I'm going to tell you the story, and then we're going to go to a, a verse at the end. So here's this. Jesus has just come off sharing three parables, three stories about reaching the lost. One of them was the lost coin and how a woman who loses a valuable coin will do everything she can to find that coin. And the other one's about a lost sheep where the shepherd will leave the flock and go out to find the one lost sheep. And then the third one was about a lost son and how this son had rejected his father, but the father's heart never left the son. And when the son finally comes home, the father is so happy to see him and welcomes him home. And then he gives this parable. And in this parable, there is a wealthy man who has a manager, a steward who cares for all of his 
property. And he gets credible evidence that this steward is cheating him and stealing from him. And so he goes to his steward and he says, look, man, I want an accounting of everything you've done from day one. I want, all, I want to see all the paperwork. And if this doesn't line up right, you're out. You're no longer to be, you're going to be fired. And so the steward knows that he's been cheating and he thinks to himself, what can I do? He fires me. I'll never get another job anywhere. And so he thinks, I know what I'll do. And so he goes to his master's creditors and he goes to one of them and says, how much oil do you owe my uh, master? And the guy says, 10,000 gallons. And he says, I'm still his manager. I still have his authority. I'm going to lower your bill to 5,000 gallons of oil. And so he does that with two other people. And he's thinking, when he fires me, at least I'll have some other people out there who owe me. And that will give me some leverage to move ahead in life. All right? That's the whole story. And, and when, when the master finds out what this, what this manager did, the master actually says, I can't believe it. You know, you are so shrewd. And the master actually commends him for how shrewd he was, that he was so shrewd he was able even to deceive this master. Now, when we get to this part... This, this is where we want to look. It says, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Now listen to this. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Just leave that passage up there, okay? Now, first, first, why would Jesus, Jesus did not commend this, this uh, thieving manager. The guy in the story commended him, okay? It's a story Jesus is telling. And so Jesus is not approving of that type of behavior. He's just saying the guy in the story recognized, even though he had been deceived, he recognized that the deceiver had been so shrewd that, that he, he kind of admired that. But here's the point of the whole story, and it's this. Jesus says that people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. What he means by that is these guys lived in a worldly system where money was everything, where money is your security, where it's okay to lie to gain money, it's okay to cheat to gain money, and all of that, and they knew that that was their system, that was their world, and they operated in it. They knew how to relate to people in their own corrupt world. And he says they knew how to do that better than the people of light know how to operate in their system, which is the kingdom of God's system. Do you follow this? He's saying, yeah, they lived in a fallen world and they did it well. All right, you're a believer in Jesus. That means you're a citizen of heaven. You live, you're a kingdom person. You're part of the kingdom of God. How well do you live that? How consistent, they were totally consistent with their values. Lying and cheating are okay. Money's everything. Power, that's what we want. They were consistent with that. And so the kingdom of God values, are we living consistently with those? And in the parable, he specifically is applying this to money. And he is specifically is applying it to extending the kingdom because of the three illustrations of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and uh, the lost son. And then he says this, 
And so then he ends up by saying, okay, if you and I really understand what it's what it is to live our lives as kingdom people, then we're going to ask ourselves, just like the shrewd guy, he was saying, well, what can I do to for my, then we're going to say, well, okay, what do I, how do I invest for the future? That's what that guy was doing, even though he was cheating and lying and stealing. You and I then say, well, how do we invest for the future? And Jesus says this, he says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, that means that we are to look at our money and we're to say, okay, what can I do that's going to that's gonna help people get to heaven so that when I get there, I'm going to have a lot of friends there? What can I do that is going to impact the lives of other people so that they're going to hear the gospel, they're going to get saved, they're going to go to heaven. And so what I'm doing with my money is impacting my future in a very real sense. That's, does that make sense, what I'm saying? Do you get that? Okay. Okay, so some people here, when they get to heaven, they're going to be people, they're going to be Guatemalans, they're going to run up to them and say, I've been waiting to meet you. You, you gave in order to support this church plant in Guatemala. I got saved there. I wouldn't be here in heaven if you hadn't given up that vacation you were going to go on in order to give money to send someone here to tell me about Jesus. Thank you for that. Investing for the future, investing in the kingdom. There are going to be people in Zimbabwe, other parts of the world, because we have so many. There are going to be people from around the world. They're going to say, you gave. I came to know Jesus. I'm here because you gave. That's living by kingdom values, okay? Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense to everybody. And, and I, it's, it's worth it. I got to tell you, it is worth it. Over and over and over again, it is worth it. And I'm going to share this with you. Um, I mean, I've, said, I've, I've noted this different times. But um, I, I, I don't like to use illustrations about myself, but I'm, I'm going to right now, okay? And it's this. Lori and I... In the last three years, we figure we've been home probably 12 Friday nights, been home by ourselves, because there is a young adult house group that meets in our house. Now, I always loved Friday nights. I loved getting my message done, five, six o'clock, going home, have a pizza, maybe drink a beer, watch a movie. I always loved that. It was so relaxing. But instead, there's, there's this group meeting there. And so we don't, we don't go home and have that night. But it's, it, you, know, you, you would say, well, is it worth it? Absolutely it's worth it. Look, if it wasn't a sacrifice, I mean, whatever God calls us to give needs to be a sacrifice. There needs to be something of ourselves that we're putting into it because that's the kingdom way. And for us, we wouldn't have it any other way. You know, we'll do this as forever because it's because there are people being saved. You know, last Friday night there was um, uh, one of the one of the young ladies from the house group was out in the park painting, and through her painting she met another young woman, and she said, "Well, hey, I'm going to this uh, service tonight to this church type meeting," and invited her to the house group meeting, and so that that young girl said, "Well, maybe I'll come." And so later that evening, she came and she tried to find it. And she was expecting to find a church building. But when she got to our house, she saw a house. And so she left and she went and knocked at someone else's door down the street and said, hey, I'm trying to find this church. And they said, oh, I think you mean this. And because they knew, you know, what was happening at our house. 
So she came, and she's out at the front door knocking now while everyone's downstairs preparing for the meeting, and no one hears her knocking. But one of the young guys down there who uh, is just sensitive to the Holy Spirit, he just suddenly feels like he should go upstairs. And so he just bolts up and runs upstairs, and he sees her standing there knocking at the door and welcomes her in. And then in the course of the evening, she's, she's connecting with people, getting loved on by people, and she, she says, I want to be baptized. They baptize her that night, and she's now just connected with a group of believers. And, and I've got to tell you, that's worth it, folks, don't you think? Isn't, wouldn't you like to be part of a story like that? I mean, I want my life to intersect with stories like that for, for, to my last breath. And I want to say that's what God's calling us all to. And it's not just sacrificing money. That's what this parable is about. But it's so much more than that. Because we can't live in both worlds. And that's why Jesus later says you can't love two masters in this same passage. You can't love two masters. You can't, you can't live in kingdom and unsaved world. You know, we, we got to plant our feet firmly in the kingdom and live on the basis of its principles. So, all right. More next week. Um, what we're going to do is, uh, okay, let's decompress after that again. Ready? Close your eyes. Okay, 1,001, 1,002, 3, 4, 5. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your goodness and your love for us. We just welcome your presence here. We yield our hearts to you. Show us more of your kingdom. Show us areas of our lives where we're trying to live, where we still have a few toes in that other world or a foot or whatever. And show us how to live more in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.